Hello again, and welcome back to The Boy Who Harnessed the Wind by William Conquamba and Brian Miller. Chapter 13, The Restless Inventor. That January, the students returned to school at Cachocolo. I sat on the road one morning listening to them laugh and joke and talk about their friends and teachers. And when they had passed, I went to my room and closed the door. I saw Gilbert and the others for games of Bawa, and when they said things like, So, William, when shall we see you at school again? Or they boasted about their grades. I said nothing or simply told them, I'd rather not talk about it. After a while, no one did. It was around then I started noticing the ghosts. Not real ghosts but boys who had dropped out of school and now loitered in the trading center without purpose. I'd seen them outside the dry goods store in their bare feet and grimy clothes, waiting for small jobs so they could spend all night in the bar rooms. In Malawi, we say these people are grooving through life, just living off Ganyu with no plans for the future, I started worrying that soon I'd become like them. I worried that one day the windmill would no longer excite me or it would become too difficult to maintain and the maize rows or boozing dens would slowly swallow me up. It was easy to lose hold of your dreams. I battled this darkness by trying to keep a positive mindset. Every week I returned to the library just to continue learning and stay inspired. I read all the novels and spelling books and practiced my English. And I continued checking out explaining physics, using energy and integrated science and researching other ways to help my family. Because the windmill had been such a success, I was feeling pressure to do something bigger. I began to see myself much like a famous reggae star who had just released a number one album and now had to produce another hit. The fans were waiting, at least I thought they were. So each day at the library, I flipped through my books looking for the next big idea. Many people who came to see my windmill kept saying the same thing. This looks like an antenna, or if you can make this electric wind, you can make one of those. That's what it looks like anyway. This made me curious how an antenna actually worked. And after thinking about it for a while, I went to Jeffrey with an idea. Eh, these people are always saying our windmill is an antenna. So let's give them what they want. What do you mean? Let's build a radio station. That afternoon, we rummaged through our bag of parts and found two junker, radios that didn't even have covers attached. I wanted to test a theory. One night, a few weeks before, there had been a big thunderstorm. I was in my room listening to the Sunday Top 20 when a huge crack of lightning exploded and caused a blip on my program, as if the lightning had sliced through my signal. So taking the two radios, I, I tuned one to a static frequency, then took the second and tuned it to the same place on the dial. When this happened, the second radio went silent. No static, nothing. 
was the frequency from one radio penetrating the other, just like the lightning bolt? If that was true, surely I could put my own voice on top of that frequency and let it ride into the next radio. One of the radios I was using was a Walkman with both AM, FM, and a cassette player. So leaving the first radio tuned to static, I took the Walkman and switched it to the tape mode. I noticed that wires ran from the tape head to the speakers, so I unhooked and reconnected them to the player's condenser, which controls the frequency. Perhaps music meant for the speakers could instead catch a ride on a frequency wave straight into its fellow radio. I put my black missionary's tape in the deck. Here it goes, I said. I pressed play and sure enough, the music played loud and clear in the other radio. The Walkman was my transmitter, meaning that if I had five radios tuned to the same frequency, they'd all be playing the Black Missionaries. Now, Mr. Jeffrey, I said, how can I do this with my voice? I unhooked the wires from the condenser and reconnected them to a separate speaker, which I'd broken off of a pair of headphones, turning it into a microphone. I pressed play again and started talking into the mic. One, two, one, two. I said, I could hear my voice coming from the other player. Good afternoon, Malawi. This is your host, William Kamkwamba, along with my trusty sidekick, Mr. Jeffrey. Your regularly scheduled program has been interrupted. After that, Jeffrey and I began experimenting with our little radio station. Jeffrey walked outside with the radio while I stayed in my room and started singing his favorite Billy Kayanda songs. Even outside, Jeffrey could hear my voice clearly. I held nothing back. After a while, he shouted, my ears are bleeding, but please carry on. This is cool. (laughs) But the farther he got from my bedroom, the weaker the signal. After 300 feet, It completely disappeared, which was probably good for Jeffrey on account of my lousy voice. (laughs) If we only had an amplifier, we could broadcast to greater distances, I said. But Jeffrey was scared we'd be arrested for messing with the government's frequencies. People kept saying the same nonsense about my windmill. You better be careful or ESCOM will come and arrest you. If the first people to experiment with great inventions such as radios, generators, or airplanes have been afraid of being arrested, we'd never be enjoying these things today. Let them come arrest me, I told them. It would be an honor. Soon I was attacking every idea with its own experiment. Over the course of the next year, I was constantly planning or devising some new scheme. And while the windmill and radio station had been successful, I couldn't say the same for the other ventures. The project I was most excited about was a water pump, which had been part of my original idea that day in the library. Just as I had done with my windmill, I first designed an experimental pump so I could play around with the concept. I modeled it after a picture in Explaining Physics of a standard force pump which uses a piston and a series of valves 
to push water through an outlet. The best example was the hand pumps and my mother, hand pumps my mother and sisters used in Wimby to get out our water. My goal was to build a pump over the shallow well at our house. It was nothing but a 40 foot hole where we took water for washing clothes and floors. It wasn't clean enough to drink. The only way to get the water was by using a long rope and a bucket. To pump water, I'd need a pipe and one that was long enough to reach the bottom of the well. Just a few days earlier, I'd stumbled over some irrigation pipes buried in the ground at the scrapyard that I must have overlooked. Taking my hoe, I went one morning and dug them up. The first was a wide PVC pipe, which I used as my outer barrel. I placed it down the well until I felt it hit the bottom. The second pipe was metal and slightly thinner, perfect for my piston. Mr. Gotston then welded a round metal washer to the end of the pipe and left its center hole open. Around the washer, I attached a thick piece of tire rubber that acted as the seal. And then had Gotston bend the top of the pipe to make a handle. When the metal pipe was pushed up and down, it created a kind of vacuum inside the outer PVC pipe. When you pulled up, the water was sucked into the plastic pipe, and when you pushed down, the rubber seal opened and pushed the water to the surface, then out a small hole and into a bucket. But the problem was, the rubber valve created too much friction against the plastic pipe. My mother and sisters tried using the pump along with some other women, but they found it too difficult to operate. I can't manage this thing, my mother said. It feels stuck. I tried greasing the pipe, but the cold water made the grease too thick and clumpy. After a while, I gave up. The pump was a failure, but it was nothing compared to my attempt to create biogas. As I mentioned earlier, deforestation in Malawi has made it difficult to find firewood for cooking, and gathering wood only adds to this destructive cycle. A good harvest of maize usually only gives us enough dried cobs to burn for about four months, but once those are finished, the hunt for wood began. In addition to fetching water in Wimby, my mother and sisters routinely walked two miles to the small blue gum forest near Kachokolo to cut down a bundle of thin trees, a chore that took at least three hours. This wood was still green and burning it produced thick white smoke that poured from our kitchen windows. Looking inside, I'd see my poor mother stirring a pot of enzima, squeezing her eyes closed as tears ran down her cheeks. All the girls in my family developed nasty coughs each year. In Malawi, this is every woman's burden, and I knew these journeys to find wood would only get longer and longer. Plus, the deforestation would only create more devastating droughts and floods. Someone had to save our women and trees. And I thought, why not me? Ever since I built the windmill, women asked me, does electric wind allow your mother to cook? The answer was no. 
My windmill didn't supply enough voltage to power a hot plate, much less an electric stove or oven. But a few weeks earlier, I was experimenting with wires and batteries and st struck upon an idea. I took a long piece of copper wire and wrapped it 20 times around a thick piece of grass, the kind we used to build our roofs and fences. I connected both ends to a 12 volt, volt battery and felt it heat up. Soon the wire was glowing red hot and the grass caught fire in my hands. It was a simple kind of stupid experiment, but it really got me thinking, maybe something like this could boil water. I couldn't place a metal pot atop a coil of wire because it would act as a conductor. A clay pot was too heavy and would crush the coil, so I built a kind of magic wand using an empty ballpoint pen. These kinds of coils existed already. I'd seen them in the trading center, but they were powered by ESCOM electricity. I connected mine to a 12 volt battery and dipped the coil into the water. In about five minutes, it was boiling. But this was too simple. I had to go bigger. My integrated science book had a small section on alternative fuels, such as solar and hydro, both of which I'd studied. But it also mentioned something called biogas, which was made by converting animal poop into fuel to use for cooking. The book described a long process to get this gas. First, you had to bury the poop in a pit, then wait months and months before the gas could be trapped with a valve. But I couldn't be bothered. I don't need a pit, I thought, and I certainly don't need to wait that long. So I devised my own plan. I snuck into my mother's kitchen and snatched the round clay pot she used for making beans. Now all I needed was the organic matter, as the book described it, and I didn't have to look far. Across the compound, Aunt Chrissy kept two goats in a wooden pen behind her house, and the ground was covered with their marble-shaped poop. Taking a sugar bag, I made sure nobody was looking and I climbed over the fence. I filled the sack until it was spilling over and walked back to the kitchen. My mother was busy in the garden, which gave me plenty of time to work. First, I dumped the poop into the pot and filled it halfway with water, causing the brown grassy balls to bob and float. Then I covered the top of the pot with a plastic jumbo bag and tied a rope around the lip, sealing it tight. For my valve, I clipped the top off a radio antenna and poked the hollow tube through the center of the plastic. Lastly, I corked the top with a reed. My mother's fire was still warm from breakfast, so I added a handful of maize cobs until the coals caught life. I placed the pot in the center and waited for greatness. Come Kwamba, I said to myself, you've really done it this time. In a few minutes, I heard a rumbling inside the pot as the water began to boil. The plastic puffed and danced from the steam, but the rope held tight. My heart began to flutter. I'd give it a few more seconds before initiating the final test. That's when my mother came in. What's that smell? She shouted. I stammered, 
biogas. It's, it's horrible. What are you doing in here? I had no time to explain. By now the plastic was rumbling like mad, ready to blow. I had to act quickly. It was time to remove the reed and proceed with ignition. I reached over and uncorked the valve. And when I did, a pipe of silver gas came rushing out the top. My mother was right. It smelled terrible. I grabbed a long piece of grass that I'd set aside and poked it into the fire, catching a flame. I stood up, ran to the door, pushing my mother aside. Stand back, I shouted. This could be dangerous. What? With half of my body protected by the door frame, I thrust the flaming torch toward the valve and shielded my eyes from the blast. But when the fire touched the gas, all it did was fizzle and die. I was left holding a wet piece of grass dripping with poopy water. My mother was furious. She dragged me out of the kitchen yelling, look what you've done. You've ruined my best cooking pot boiling goat poop. Wait until I tell your father. I tried to tell her I was doing it for her sake, but I guess it wasn't the right time. In 2006, when I was 18 years old, another famine struck Malawi. That year, thanks to a change in government, my family had been able to buy a few bags of fertilizer at first, the rains came like they normally do. We planted our seeds and waited for them to show their faces. Then added a spoonful of fertilizer and a lot of prayer. By January, the seedlings were ankle high and showing their little arms. So happy to be drinking up such delicious rain. But just about the time they reached my father's knees, the rains stopped completely. By the time Dawa season arrived. Most of the ears were deformed. The government quickly promised help, but in the meantime, people grew angry and scared. During the famine of 2001 and 2002, people blamed the corrupt officials who had sold our surplus, but this time, instead of acknowledging the weather, they blamed magic. And that meant blaming me. Superstitions were still very strong throughout the country, and several incidents in the news had stirred fears even more. During the previous famine, we'd heard lots of reports about vampires stealing people's body parts and selling them. Following the vampires, a strange beast appeared in Dawa and began attacking villages. Some said it looked like a hyena. Others said it was a lion with the face of a dog. The attacks caused thousands to flee their homes and sleep in the forest, where they were even more vulnerable to this exotic creature. The police conducted all-night searches, then one evening, they managed to corner the beast in a thicket and open fire with their rifles. But instead of falling dead, the beast split into three separate animals and disappeared into the bush. Villagers summoned their Singanga, who concocted a powerful potion and flung it into the trees. The next morning, the beast lay dead on the road. Its single corpse was no bigger than a dog. 
Later, it was discovered the animal was the product of magic. A certain trader near Dawa had purchased some thunder and lightning from a powerful witch doctor and had refused to pay for it. In retaliation, the wizard sent a monster against his village. These stories, however ridiculous, only increase people's fears in evil powers. So in 2006, when it looked as if another famine was coming, People blamed magic. For weeks, we'd gone without rain. Then finally, one day in March, a giant storm clouds appeared in the distance. The sight of oily black thunderheads was something to celebrate. Look, people said, today we will have rain. Finally, we're saved. But as the clouds came overhead, a strong wind began to blow. It whipped the red dirt into our eyes and mouths and sent little cyclones tearing through our fields. Little by little, the storm drifted away without leaving a drop. With nothing but the scorching sun left in the sky, people gathered at my house and pointed up to my windmill. The blades were spinning so fast, the tower rocked and swayed. Look. This giant fan has blown away the clouds. His machine is chasing away our rain. The machine is evil. It's not a machine. It's a witch tower. This boy is calling witches. Wait a second, I said. The drought is all over the country. It's not just here. The electric wind is not the cause. But we saw it with our own eyes, they said. I was afraid these people would return one day and tear down my windmill or worse. All the next week I stayed inside. I even stopped the blades during the day so they wouldn't raise more suspicions. At the training center, people approached Gilbert. You can tell us the truth, they said. Is it true what he says about this electric wind or is he really a witch? He isn't a witch, Gilbert answered. It's a windmill, a scientific machine. I helped him build it. Are you sure? I'm sure you've seen it for yourself. Many of them had even used my windmill to charge their mobile phones. But placing the blame on me helped them overcome their fears about the famine. Luckily, not long after that, the government stepped in and released tons of maize on the market. A few months later, some aid agencies arrived and offered more assistance. No one starved or died. A catastrophe had been avoided, but still, it underlined the kind of backwardness in our people that really frustrates me.